It's Thursday, July 15th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. On Monday, the top commander in Afghanistan, U.S. Army General Austin Miller, stepped down, effectively ending 20 years of fighting. So what's the state of the war on terror now? For that, we're talking to General Russ Howard. He commanded a counterterrorism special operations unit in the Pacific and has co-authored seven books on terrorism and counterterrorism. He's the founder, in fact, of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. He's led two other terrorism-related think tanks at major universities in the United States. And most recently, just last month, he was the senior member of a joint special operations university counterterrorism education team in Ghana. He also predicted in a TED Talk that ISIS would be defeated in Iraq and Syria well before the Allies were victorious there. So we're very pleased to have Russ with us today. Russ, welcome to the podcast. Hello, John. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So Russ, given your resume, you're a very good person to answer the very simple question. Are we winning or losing the so-called global war on terror? Well, fortunately, we uh, dropped the GWAT global war on terrorism moniker during the second George W. Bush administration. So terrorism is not an ism like communism, socialism, capitalism. It's a tactic. You asked a very good question. Are we winning or losing? And it depends on your point of view. If our goals and objectives were to keep any al-Qaeda-type organization from attacking the United States, like they did in 9-11, then we've won so far. But that's not a very comprehensive objective. And if you look at the three major terrorist organizations that confront the United States, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hezbollah, you'll note that ISIS is operating in 16 different countries, Al-Qaeda in 9 or 11, depending on who you ask and who they've now affiliated with. And Hezbollah operates wherever there's an Iranian embassy. So that's an increase uh, from where we were in 9-11. So if your view is the United States has uh, remained safe, we're winning. But my opinion is that we're not winning. Terrorist organizations that face the United States are increasing in size and membership and territory. Why are we not winning in, in that category, if you will? Well... It's uh, complicated. The United States has, in my view, overused the military element of power in trying to defeat terrorism and terrorists, has ignored many of the root causes of terrorism, and has not changed the narrative to confront terrorist organizations. In fact, with regards to the narrative, the United States and allies in Europe are constantly trying to keep it. The uh, good news is that uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda are confrontational, and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and ISIS are confrontational because Hezbollah is not a Sunni organization, and they don't like each other, and they attack each other, and that's something that I think you might want to ask me how we're going to defeat these guys, is to make them take on each other exacerbate their differences and have them do to themselves what we would try to do to them. So that's just an opinion. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are different. Their targets are different. Al-Qaeda is 
main target is the United States. ISIS main targets are the principally Arab Muslim states that the United States supports or props of. Al-Qaeda, the far enemy is the United States. ISIS is a near enemy. They confront governments like in Chad or many governments in Africa that they think are tucker or they're not serious enough about the Muslim faith. Their tactics are different. ISIS is much more violent than Al-Qaeda. ISIS likes to take territory, which they found was unfortunate in Iraq and Syria, because the United States does know how to take on a state. And ISIS has not changed its behavior, interestingly. They're still trying to make provinces of many countries, caliphates in many countries, and take on the offerings of a government, which uh, can't play to the United States. Al-Qaeda is much different. They don't want to take territory. They don't want to take governments. They just want to keep the United States from propping up Arab and Muslim countries around the world. So there are different tactics, and they have different targets. Obviously, one of the big events in, you know, sort of the last two or three weeks is the ongoing departure, I guess, of the United States from Afghanistan. How do you read that situation? The last time, you know, the U.S., supported the Mujahideen, and that led to Russia's defeat there. Then we sort of forgot about it, and that led, uh, at least in part, to 9-11. With the U.S. leaving Afghanistan, it seems to me destabilizing for Iran, destabilizing for Pakistan, indeed destabilizing for the whole region, if you will. How do you see that? Well, it's interesting. You know, I was a lieutenant during the Vietnam confrontation, and I see many similarities with our departure from Vietnam. We negotiated and bought enough time to depart. The Viet Cong and Vietnamese captured much or most of our military equipment that we left there. The Taliban is doing the same thing in Afghanistan. I th- I think I read yesterday where they at least claim to have about 85, control about 85% of the territory in Afghanistan, and we shouldn't be surprised. The interesting thing is that uh, you're right. The U.S. departure is destabilizing in some interesting ways. Iran is a concern now because Iran and Afghanistan, I mean, Shia and, and Sunni differences, They were enemies before the United States took down Saddam Hussein. And so Iran is concerned, and they should be. They will probably be the recipient of about 1.5 million refugees who escape. Those that were loyal to the United States escape Afghanistan looking for some refuge. In another interesting way, uh, China's concerned. China is been extracting uh, mineral wealth from Afghanistan for about the last 12, 13 years and has been protected by, interestingly enough, U.S. military forces. Well, absent those military forces, Chinese are going to have to start providing for their own security or make their own deal with the Taliban. And the Taliban don't like Chinese for what's happening in Xinjiang province. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And U.S. withdrawal is going to negatively affect some of our other adversaries. It's sort of an interesting twist. The difference, I think, in Vietnam and Afghanistan and withdrawing is this withdrawal was more orderly. 
I don't think you're going to see a evacuation of the U.S. Embassy like we did in uh, Saigon. So I think the, the withdrawal and the change of command yesterday, the leading U.S. military officer there, was uh, an interesting withdrawal. And from what I can tell now, pretty well done. If you have been to Vietnam in the last few years like I have, Vietnam is a thriving country and Americans are popular there. The only people that have resentment in the United States there now are the South Vietnamese officers who are pulling pedicabs because they speak English. Mm-hmm. Not very happy with us. But most Vietnamese, I think Americans are good. The U.S. is okay. And I don't think that is going to happen in Afghanistan anytime in the next few decades. So there are similarities and differences from our Vietnam experience. Of course, Afghanistan was much longer, but it didn't have the same impact on the United States that Vietnam did. Vietnam, 55,000 deaths, I believe, or close. Mm -hmm. Uh, Afghanistan, I think maybe five, you know, the, the number is much less. So the Afghan experience, the military experience there did not affect the United States and Americans like Vietnam did. You did. I just wanted to ask you about Pakistan, which, you know, has a working relationship, if you will, with uh, the Taliban. They're going to suffer because of the U.S. withdrawal, because a lot of those refugees are also going to go to into Pakistan. And they will bemoan the, the experience of them supporting the Taliban. It's going to be very difficult for Pakistan once the United States is totally gone. You know, you have refugee flow of, say, one million plus into Iran and let's call it one million into Pakistan. Does that just happen or can Iran and Pakistan say, no, you can't come across the border you have to stay in Afghanistan or go somewhere else. Well, in in many ways, you know, it's tribal. So those folks that go from Afghanistan to Iran are probably going to an area of similar tribal backgrounds and the same in Pakistan. So it's not like there's a border. There's not like there's a wall, you know, a wall to keep the uh, Afghans out because they have tribal affiliations across borders. So it's, it's more complicated than if they were just from some other country. There will be retribution in Afghanistan. And there will be problems for those that cooperated with the U.S. and allies. And I think the big losers in Afghanistan are women. And it surprises me that in the United States that uh, women activists who are concerned about women's place in the world. I see no rise in hue of concern for Afghan women who I think will suffer in this uh, in the U.S. withdrawal. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. There was a story in The Guardian last week of uh, women arming themselves in preparation for the Taliban invading, I think it was Kabul, given the freedom that has been enjoyed by women in Afghanistan since the U.S., moved in and installed the government that it installed, it's going to be a nightmare. I mean, just a complete nightmare. And I assume that they will be a large percentage of the population that's seeking to get out. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we'll return shortly with more from General Howard. Welcome back to News Items. I'm back with General Howard. You mentioned China's relationship with Afghanistan. In the 
larger picture, what role do you think they are going to play in, say, the next decade? That's it's an interesting question. As you know, I've followed China for a long time. Um, Chinese foreign policy until very recently, they would say the United States has military forces all around the world and the Chinese will never station military forces outside of China. Well, they have in Djibouti, they have a, a military base and they are thinking about protective measures of their One Belt, One Road initiative. And it will be interesting to see if they provide security for the minerals that they're extracting from Afghanistan or the resources they're extracting from Afghanistan. In 1999, I wrote a monograph, Short Arms and Slow Legs, the Chinese PLA. And in that monograph, I suggested, actually predicted that the Chinese PLA was no competition for the United States. And people remember that part of that monograph. They also remember the reasons why I said that they could not confront the United States. And 20 years ago, I think we proved it because of the Taiwan Strait problem. We ran two carrier battle groups around the Taiwan Strait. And in those two carrier battle groups, there was more combat power than China could muster in the whole coastal China. Mm. What I also said in that monograph is that by 2025, it would be different. And I said in the monograph, I wasn't very explicit, but I mentioned that China might be able to confront the United States regionally. And I think that's exactly what they're preparing to do. If you look at the islands that they're fortifying near the Philippines, those islands uh, are standoff areas where they can confront U.S. care battle groups with missiles far out from China. So, Compound security threats are the are the buzzwords these days where China feels very comfortable in challenging us politically, economically, even militarily to a certain extent without passing the red line of military confrontation, conventional military confrontation. Mm-hmm. And they're very good at it. China is something to uh, something we need to, I think, confront in the gray zone. The gray zone is a very popular term now that explains the confrontation environment for great power competition in that political, economic, informational warfare occur in the gray zone, not militarily, conventional militarily. One thing about the Chinese, they understand what their priorities are and what their national interest is. And people who think that we can cooperate with the Chinese, as long as their interests are our interests, you can cooperate. But increasingly, their interests are not U.S. interests. And it's concerning to not just me, but a lot of people. Looking at, you know, the big picture of the China-U.S. relationship, is it a sort of a replay of the Cold War? No, I'm not sure it's a replay of the Cold War because China is much more aggressive than during the Cold War. China's foreign policy for centuries has always been the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So when uh, Russia and the United States were confrontational, China was on Russia's side. But when Russia and China got confrontational, then they gravitated toward the U.S. There's really not that dynamic now. I get asked if I were came for a day, how would I defeat China? And it's pretty easy. It wouldn't be fun and it wouldn't be pretty, but you just shut down the U.S. market. I know Walmart would 
go under because 92% of the stuff that's in there is made in China. Americans will pay a lot more for stuff. But people in the United States, and I think worldwide, don't understand the power of the U.S. market. The U.S. market saved Europe after World War II. The ability to sell to the United States at really <laughs> favorable to them rates, unfavorable to the United States. In 1974, I wrote a paper about doing business with China. In 1974, the two-way trade with China and the United States was $86,000. Now I think the two-way trade is like $140 billion. I mean, it's, and the only thing we bought from China then was uh, pig bristle for brushes. Now we buy everything, and, and that's in my, my lifetime. Cutting off, it would be very difficult to do. It would be very difficult to do. But if the United States shut down its market to China, China would last about six months before it would internally disintegrate. It, that's my prediction. I've been saying that for 30 years. Uh, a fellow by the name of Rod McFarquhar, a uh, professor at Harvard, that was his whole shtick. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But I think that's how you could do it uh, without firing a shot. Whether we would have the gumption or whether we would do it or not is, is quite a different story. But we could. I think I'll leave it there, John, on uh, <laughs> what we should do with China. That, that's not a very popular point of view, by the way, because you and I both know some people that made quite a bit of money uh, <laughs> do a business with China. That's the genius of the China strategy, it seems to me, is that you just bring them in to do more and more business, and then it you know, makes it increasingly hard for the U.S. government to, uh, quote, confront, end quote, China. That seems to have worked rather well and in the last year that you know now opened up the financial services industry to china I mean, it's just very shrewd and yeah. uh, very successful i wanted to ask you because you know more th about this than i think anyone i know but the spread of terrorism in africa i don't think our listeners to the news items podcast have a real picture of that i think they've read about it here and there in the paper but yeah unfortunately i do it's become my, my avocation for the last, you know, really since about 2008. Boko Haram has grown from a minor criminal group in northeastern Nigeria. They conducted really limited, mostly criminal activity, but they would take out a policeman or a judge once in a while and, and did conduct some terrorist activity. Now they are uh, a major threat to five, perhaps even six Sahel African uh, countries. They have aligned with ISIS, and they're very concerning. Al-Qaeda is still alive and well in Africa, but they are confrontational with ISIS. And as I said before, I think we, can, we could manipulate that some to our advantage. Hezbollah is not really active in Africa like ISIS and Al-Qaeda because Iran can no longer fund Hezbollah to the extent that they had uh, a decade ago before sanctions. Uh, Hezbollah works for their own account. So they have tapped into the Lebanese diaspora in Africa, which particularly for West Africa, the Sahel and even the Maghreb in a way, Lebanese diaspora is the glue that holds the economies together. Any major hotel in West Africa now is usually owned by Lebanese 
or increasingly by Chinese. Um, but Hezbollah makes those folks tithe to Hezbollah. So anywhere there's an Iranian embassy, Hezbollah is alive and well. All those terrorist organizations have increased their power, their presence, their recruiting in African states, which do not have the resources nor the capability really to fight them or address them. So it's very concerning to me. I wish it were more concerning to uh, U.S. policymakers. We have uh, pulled, I guess, about 60% of our special operations forces out of Africa. The big concern is major power competition, China. So there's a reallocation of assets. So I'm very concerned about Africa. Africa is an interesting place. I mean, there's... (laughs) About 1.2 billion Africans, and they say, well, it's a poor place, and they only make $2 a day in most of the countries, but, you know, they spend $2 a day, too. So the market opportunities in Africa, I think, are, you know, if I weren't 75 and I was 35, I'd be there trying to establish some business. But your question is a good one, and I am very concerned about increased terrorist activity, particularly ISIS, somewhat Al-Qaeda, than Hezbollah because they're just there. And I don't know that, frankly, U.S. policy in this administration or the Trump administration understands the complexity and the potential problems that increased terrorist activity can take there. Obviously, Nigeria is the oil-rich state there. And is ISIS, in in its alignment with Boko Haram, are they looking to to take control of it in the way that the Taliban are in Afghanistan, or is it more just we'll grab this territory and that and uh, well, do business from there? Nigeria is complicated. I'm going to digress here a little bit, John, and, and draw me back in if you want. But Nigeria is complex. Most think it's a religious confrontation between the Christians there and the Muslims there. But there is this confrontational zone called the Belt, which really bisects or cuts across Nigeria right at the middle. And Jos is the major city right in the middle. And this is where the Christians, Muslims, that's where they start and they fight. That's where the confrontation is. But it's more complicated than that. It's not that religious. It's more about land use. So the nomads who are increasingly driven south because of desertification of the deserts in northern Africa six kilometers a year going south for the last 25 years, I mean, do the math, run up against Christians who are primarily agronomists or they're farmers. So it's not just a religious problem, it's a land use problem, and it's a resources problem because those in the north of Nigeria think they should share in the oil wealth of the south. So it's more complex than a religious terrorist problem. And that's much of Africa, or at least the Sahel and the Maghreb, it's, it's not just religious. It's land use, it's resource use, it's tribal. ISIS would like nothing better than to create caliphates or provinces, as they call them now, of many of the African states. Mm-hmm. Chad, Mali, Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, possibly. I mean, that would be their ideal. Boko Haram, they have a marriage of convenience with ISIS now. They had a marriage of convenience with Al-Qaeda, but ISIS is 
is seen in Africa as the more aggressive terrorist organization than one to belong to, particularly if you're young. Mm-hmm. So Boko Haram, they want a share of the profits. Right, right. right. That's, where, that's how they started, and, and they sort of picked up the religious part to justify their, their activities. Right. So I don't know that the Boko Haram-ISIS relationship, uh, I don't know how strong it is, but I know Boko Haram north of Ghana now, in Burkina Faso, is sort of carrying the ISIS banner. Uh, which is concerning. We're going to have to jump here, but thank you very much for doing this, Russ. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. It's relatively inexpensive, and I think well worth your time. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname. Allie Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Simran Singh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later.